open up your books, you bad apples. I can see my sound waves. It's always a plus. <laughs> it's kind of funny to see what your voice is shaped like. Isn't it? Should get a, yeah. get a tattoo of my own voice one day of the um, of the podcast. If I may say, Stephen Bloom, a uh, very well known voice actor. I mean, if you know, if anyone's ever played a video game or watched a TV show, like an anime, he was probably part of it somehow. He's got like a thousand credits on his IMDb, but one of his first big roles was for the American dub of the Japanese uh, anime Cowboy Bebop Ooh. and that that kind of launched his whole career into the stratosphere him voicing the character in the American version and uh, so he got his last spoken words for that TV show or maybe it's just the last singular word but he got the sound wave for that tattooed on his arm now that's rock and roll uh, yeah that is pretty I'm cool. going to get our whole catalog of and compress oh, wow. it into one winding sound wave that goes all across my body. Wonderful. Um, it's gonna look tribal. I want the, I want my artist to give me. It, I want it to be in a tribal form for sure. Tribal tattoos, man. Bring them back. You know. I'm all feel for like it. Just, yeah, I feel like you just don't see people with enough like tribal tattoos i guess um is this part of the show are we doing the show right now <laughs> uh yeah yeah we can perfect hello everyone welcome to the bad apple book club i'm lucas nord and i'm your host cole lang and after months of meticulous research and Oh, mostly reading a book, and it didn't take months. It took like two weeks or something like that. We are finally here with our spookiest book yet. You've been waiting for it. Yep. Oh, I think I already told you this, but one very special listener told me that they decided to pick the book up, and they are over halfway through with it right now. So by the time this is out on Monday, they'll actually like – you know, have the full scoop and stuff or whatever, man. You know what I'm saying? Oof, that's our third listener that I've known that's uh, picked up the book. Well, maybe a fourth. There's been at least four, I think, so far that have been following along somewhat. I love you people. You're so wonderful. I don't know who most of you are. <laughs> if there is a most of you, but I still love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, this one's going to be a little different. Because every author for a book we've covered up to this point has been dead. You know, Dostoevsky, been dead for 500 years or Still whatever. alive in my heart. Oh, of course. Yep. Ken Kesey, he put that book out in 62, so he's probably not alive. Can't really <laughs> say for sure, honestly. Anthony Burgess, dead as disco. H.P. Lovecraft, uh, he put his stories out in like the early 1900s. So, you know, I'm pretty sure he's not alive either. But to change things up today, we're coming at you with The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. But guess what, baby? Clive Barker's still alive and kicking. So we don't have so much of a full story of his to tell because his story is yet to be complete. Um, just launching off into a horror thing for a second here, though. He's a very prolific director. 
most people, I mean, I assume anyone that's ever heard of a movie has heard of Hellraiser at least, or they know about the, the idea. Pinhead. Yeah. Pinhead, Doug Bradley. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, not referred to as Pinhead in the book. And in the original movie, he is credited as the priest. Mm. So Pinhead is just one of those names that people picked up and ran with, even though it's unofficial. And I don't even think Clive Barker likes the name. <laughs> Pinhead. <But laughs> just a few other, uh, a few other movies that mm, I don't know if they would stand out to anyone listening. But he also wrote the screenplay for the movie Rawhead Rex, which is like one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Um, the original story is about this. Oh, yeah, this will be a perfect taste before we actually get to the Hellbound Heart. Um, let me just say before I launch into this that this is without a doubt going to be our most uh, explicit episode yet. Sexiest. Yes, yeah, sexiest, most covered in bodily fluids. Um, so like I was saying, he wrote the short story that was later adapted by someone else to, into a movie called Rawhead Rex. And Clive Barker's original version was this big phallic monster. He literally, he's quoted saying that Rawhead Rex, the monster in the book, had a big old prick for a head or whatever. Like, oh. he's just a giant walking phallic symbol. <laughs> and the whole, the whole story is symbolism because in the end, the only thing that defeats Rawhead Rex is a pregnant woman, <laughs> I think. Um, so yeah, it's literally like a big metaphor for masculinity or whatever. And then some some screwball directed into a real piece of crap, and Rawhead Rex looks like a big warthog wearing football pads for some reason. <laughs> um, not a good movie at all. Kind of fun to watch, whatever. It's got some interesting kills. There's a few scenes where the guy playing Rawhead Rex just goes to town in like a kitchen, like pushing tables over and smashing glasses, which is kind of fun. And the other big one I would say is Candyman. Candyman. Uh, very, very well known in the horror circles. You know, interestingly enough, maybe someone had heard of Candyman growing up. It's the Bloody Mary alternative. Say his name in the mirror. I believe it's five times for Candyman. And then he appears and he's got the, bloody stump with the hook sticking out of it uh, and then he kills you or takes you uh, to his house or whatever Candyman home that's what we'll call it but interestingly enough while people may have grown up in fear of the Candyman and the urban legend it was actually started with the movie really yes absolutely the 1992 classic I've seen that one before it's fine so Rahad Rex uh, is that the reason why he got into directing movies, his own stuff? Oh. Because they were like, he was like, this is shit. And then he wow. kind of uh, went from incredible. there. That's exactly what he did. He was so disappointed in how Rawhead Rex turned out on the big screen that he said, guess what, baby? I'm taking the reins on this next one. Nice. And that was Hellraiser. Hellbound Heart. Yep. And he's also got a movie called Nightbreed, which is kind of interesting. Um, in that movie, the serial killer, well, it's like uh, it's like there's this place in a cemetery full of like weird mutants and stuff. They're referred to as the Nightbreed. And then the main character dies in the beginning and he's brought back as a Nightbreed. And then there's this like serial killer doctor going around with this weird mask played by David Cronenberg, 
a very famous body horror director. He directed the Jeff Goldblum version of The Fly. He directed Videodrome. He directed Scanners. He's got some crazy movies under his belt. Hell yeah. But we're not here to talk about movies today. We're here to talk about The Hellbound Heart. Probably the shortest book I've ever read. Before we get into this, Cole, did you want to do some talking instead of me doing all the talking? <laughs> I'm very excited. Oh, uh, <laughs> let well, the excitement is mutual, but I know that uh, horror is definitely your your hobby. I don't know your your passion. I'm a, um, I'm a bit of a gore hound. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's something. Some horror fans call themselves not the ones I want to be associated with, but yeah, big, big gore Ooh. fan, big, big Al Gore yeah. fan. Um, oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Gore 2000. Yeah, um, yes, sir. Is that the year you ran? <laughs> what, yeah, yep, 2000. Yep, long time ago, very interesting year. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday, yeah. Um, but, um, I just wanted to say. Stephen King had a quote about this guy. He said, the future of horror is here, and his name is Clive Barker. So the the king of horror himself said, oh, this guy, this guy's up and coming. Isn't that kind of funny? He's the king of horror. That's also his last name. Uh, (laughs) No, that is. Can't help but kind of. You get it. It's, you know, it's kind of like uh, maybe not so much a play on words, but it's just a little joke for you. It's just a little fun, just a little something. But no, no, please. um, Let's get into the Hellbound Heart. The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. Alrighty, here we go. The novella starts with an introduction to the horniest man alive, Frank Cotton. Uh, Without giving much explicit detail, we're clued into the fact that there isn't much Frank hasn't seen or done in the realm of his like uh, personal sensuality. And once again, getting into the explicit thing, they don't really tell you, but we're going to see later that uh, you can't really put much past Frank. So if you can think of it, he's probably done it. Yeah. Um, This guy sounds pretty familiar so far. (laughs) He's in the middle of a transaction with a mysterious man named Kircher and hopes to gain hold of the, enigmatic Lemurcon configuration, a cubic puzzle box with no discernible rhyme or reason and is not as obvious a puzzle as it may seem. You know, you're picturing the Rubik's cube. It's the same size, but this little Lemurcon configuration uh, in the movie Hellraiser, it's called the lament configuration. Hmm. Not really sure why they switched that out, but it's this little wooden box and all the grooves in it are so thin you can barely see them. It's just, it's pretty much a brick in the wrong hands. And it's going to be used as a brick later in the book. Hey, oh, but it's much more complicated than a brick. I remember yes. he had to like study this puzzle for a very long time and this, just to get around it. This whole ritual that we're about to launch into through his perspective is, um, yeah, it is uh, weeks in advance leading up to it. Tracking the box down in the first place was bad enough, but um, it's like it's, he, uh, it's like he was uh, waiting in line for like his new favorite puzzle, like like as if it's the newest Call of Duty release. 
He's just oh, like, <laughs> like he can't wait. The kids, uh, the kids waiting in line for three days, like that kind of thing. You're talking about <laughs> yeah. upside the staff or whatever. He's just like camping uh, out. And he can't wait to get this thing. In exchange for solving uh, the six-sided enigma, the receipt is to receive an invitation to follow the Cenobites or the Order of the Gash Ooh. into the cube for an extreme. Uh, for as extreme a sensory sensation as one can handle, and then some. Ooh. So the idea is Frank has not been satisfied sensually. Uh, like I said, we're going to learn that he does not deserve to be satisfied sensually in the first place, but he's a very selfish man. And we're going to no. meet his brother later, and we're going to see that they are opposite <laughs> sides. A little the same different. Point little different um now the order of the gash what is there anything going on there or is it kind of like um ambiguous it's it's like the cenobites are the order of the gash and the order of the gash are the cenobites cenobites is just you know just a nice way to shorten it up into some really strange word but the idea is as far as i can picture they don't get too explicit in the book I kind of imagine that the Cenobites themselves are a bit of a council thing because, I don't know, they sit in judgment of people in the book and the movie. So, so. it's basically the Jedi Council. and um, Except more um, flesh galleries. <laughs> Otherwise, it, same thing. It's like if uh, Yoda and... Mace Windu and all those other guys had like a bunch of hooks connected to their skin and their skin was sewn on. Uh, (laughs) Now that's a version of Star Wars that I would like to see. I would love to see that version of Star Wars. Yeah. Frank is given the box after doing a series of small favors for the owner of the configuration. This being Kircher. He's kind of tracked this guy down and, you know, dug into all four corners of the earth just to get to this just to get to this wacky puzzle box he's just freaking obsessed with it dude uh, and we aren't we aren't told what the small favors are but like i said and like i'll say again we're gonna see that uh you can't put much past uh, frank cotton yep. and it's in deuce dusseldorf that's uh deuce that's in germany i'm in germany i'll have to that's go find probably, it it's probably like the most fun name for any place i've ever heard honestly dusseldorf yeah i I definitely want to get a puzzle from there oh yeah be careful if you do though (laughs) heading to his grandmother's home with the box intel frank initiates the ritual of solving the puzzle and preparing for the cenobites meaning that he scrubs the floorboards and leaves flower petals everywhere. Oh, he creates man. a sort of altar to them with bonbons. Ooh, see, this sounds kind of nice so far. Cleaning the floor, flower petals, bonbons. Oh, bones and needles. Okay, getting a little right, weird. Well. Oh, a jug of urine. Ah. Seven days worth, to be exact. He must have been real hydrated. Got to be honest, don't want people to think about my bathroom habits, but I'm almost positive. I couldn't fill a gallon up in a week. Uh, but this just kind of just kind of sounds like an extreme like fangirl, you know, like for like a Bieber or uh, oh. One Direction. Frank is the dude with the VIP passes. 
That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. He's doing um, all the right steps here. Oh, yeah. And to cap it all off, he also lays out a plate of dove heads. All of these things advised <laughs> by Kircher. He's got the... He's got the sweet and the savory. It's like something for everyone. Oh my gosh! It, it's like um, when on SpongeBob when they're trying to <laughs> um get mm-hmm. get that um monster with the upside down sombrero. Oh, oh, the <laughs> underwater bear, I believe. Yeah, yeah, oh, <laughs> and they got the cheese plate. <laughs> oh, the cheese plate. Yep the the um. The circle that they drew around themselves, <laughs> the safety circle, you know, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I've been in a pinch before and a little safety circle drawn around <laughs> me has done wonders, buddy. It's the little things. Yep. Frank solves the puzzle and hears the distant and ominous ring of a bell. Shifting walls inside the house, the Cenobites enter the room to Frank's disgust. He's, you know, he's picturing these beautiful bodacious uh virgins who also how know how to do everything which is kind of an oxymoron when you think about it Mm -hmm. but i suppose if this is sex heaven then you get whatever you want yeah yeah they'll they're willing to do anything and everything his wicked and awful heart desires but instead of being greeted by these beautiful women he's greeted by what he refers to as sexless beings Molded in corrugated flesh. Oh, little bit of a now, little bit of a letdown here. Yeah, seriously. Like, I mean, I understand if he's disappointed. I would probably be disappointed myself. Um, what is this term? This is the one that stood out to me the most through the whole book. Swear to God, corrugated flesh. Now. For people that didn't know or did know but might need a little bit of a refresher, corrugated is like the word you associate with those roofs that are made out of like tin or whatever with like the waves in them. So he's referring to these Cenobites as being molded in corrugated flesh. What does that conjure up for you mentally, Cole? Well, just using context clues, I guess it it just reminded me of... um... Like something like Frankenstein, I guess. Like uh, nice overlapping yeah, skin and shit. Almost like completely being stitched together piece by piece. Yeah, yeah. Maybe like odd limbs here and there. Yeah, honestly, not not doing it for me, man. Not, no, no. Nope. Honestly, <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. Yeah. Um. But yes, also not a fan of this. Sex. Uh. Sexless. In that the region that once held their genitals is, is now scarified beyond recognition. Oh. Gotta say, too, that sounds pretty wicked. Kind of icky. Once again, you're conjuring up a mental image of uh, maybe like if you threw a hot dog in a blender with like some gray paint. I'm picturing these mm. Cenobites being gray, but that's probably because I've seen the movie five times. Giving Frank their sales pitch being, you know, pleasures beyond your wildest imaginations and understanding, the Cenobites are given Frank's permission to take him with them. Once again, horniest man alive. He's told that he is going to be more satisfied than anything he ever felt on Earth. This guy that feels like he has gone beyond the pale. Nothing's doing it for him anymore. He lives for lust 
but it is just it's not even a good thing for him it's just like a a craving like anything else that he just cannot get his satisfaction from and i'd say i feel bad for him but i don't no red i'm not seeing any red flags here to be honest okay now see i was gonna say it's kind of interesting how dumb you would have to be to follow these people made of scars into a, a puzzle box. But I suppose he already he already collected all the dove heads in the urine. So, I mean, I suppose if you're already <laughs> that far. Yeah. Um, and I, I would like to mention, I didn't punch it up in the outline. But as you might imagine, Frank's uh, initial reaction is just shock and disgust. He's got a – or the Cenobites really have to worm his responses out of him right away because he's like – awestruck with these gross weird like (laughs) you know travelers and sensuality i forget what the specific term is uh or the specific phrase it might be in the book i know it's in the movie but um they're referred to as like explorers of not sexuality but like sensory shit like that kind of stuff okay Um, yeah i'll take a second here to mention that barker's adaptation of his own work to the silver screen uh, that with that came the monster design. Um, in the book, Pinhead is actually very similar to the film in that uh, his whole head is like gridded with deep cuts, and in every intersecting area is a jeweled nail pounded in. Uh, not quite so fancy in the movie. It's just Doug Bradley, his big bald head covered up with all that crap, and he's still got the nail sticking out, but they aren't jeweled pins, and... One of the things that I personally took away from uh, Hellraiser is Doug Bradley's not only his amazing, uh, I mean, he looks awesome as Pinhead, but he's also got a very good voice. Uh, uh, Some of my favorite quotes in the movie are, you know, no tears, it's a waste of good suffering, or we will tear your soul apart. Doug Bradley, Um, what else is that guy in? As far as I know, if you know him, he's known for just like uh, Robert England. He made his uh, he made his name like under the makeup and compared to a Jason Voorhees in all all of the Friday the 13th movies. The only consistent person to play Jason was Kane Hodder. uh, And that was for the seventh eighth ninth and tenth movies otherwise i believe the first six jason was played by a different person because they just needed a big lumbering guy with a hockey mask but doug bradley mostly known for pinhead he played him in i think the first eight movies and the last two have had different people playing pinhead and they look pretty goofy but that's obviously (laughs) doug bradley so iconic um but pinhead in the book uh, though sexless, has the almost sweet voice of a woman. Um, <sighs> kind of an interesting deviation, but I'm glad that they did it. This is one of those things where uh, I think of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and I think of how ridiculous the adaptation is in some aspects. But the novella here and the movie both being written and uh, directed by the main man himself here is simply just incredible. So I'm not taking points away for him not having a female voice. He probably, like anything else, he made the movie a couple years after he wrote the book. So he's probably like, you know what? 
I'm just going to tweak this one just a little bit. Uh, after reeling in his initial awe from the view of such ghastly creatures, Frank is offered an invitation with the Hellish Collective to a land where pain and pleasure are indivisible and your limits are going to be tested to the fullest extent and then some. Hell yeah, welcome to the Marines, brother. Yeah, accepting the invitation, Frank is again alone in the room. He's there with the Cenobites one second. They shift the walls in the bricks, literally like astral traveling. And then when he says, yeah, you know, I got nothing going on. Then, poof, they're gone. He's in the room alone. Was it all just a lucid dream? That's all until Mm. his sense of smell is flooded with the scent of literally like everything ever. He's smelling. He's smelling the homemade cookies his mom made when he was a child. He's smelling the fresh cut grass of the lawns he cut when he was a teenager. He's Hmm. he's smelling um, other things that can be smelled. And (laughs) the neighbor's toilet down the street. He can smell the flowers outside and the pile of dog shit across the street. Mm. This starts a domino effect with every other sense in his entire body and every nerve ending just firing on all firing on all cylinders or whatever, reliving vivid memories when he closes his eyes, hearing every bird tweet and flap their wings for miles, tasting every morsel that ever touched his vile tongue and feeling ready to explode. Can you imagine this? Because even, you know, some small amounts of emotion can be overwhelming. But this guy, his eyes are open and everything is bright and he sees everything. And so he closes them, obviously, but then he's reliving every horrible memory. And who's to say if he actually has remorse for some of the wicked things that he's done in his life? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, if this is me, it would be like all all the um, bullying I got when I was a child because that was all all the the, I had as a kid, you know. The horror. (laughs) No, it was a pretty good childhood, I guess. It would be a lot of um, just a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of Legos. I'd probably build a lot of Legos in this. um, Oh, man. My coworker just showed me they got uh, they got this big old Lego set for their kid or whatever, and man, I was like, I got to go buy one of these right now, dude. I did like, during quarantine. Oh my god, I probably I probably will one day. I'll buy the biggest Lego set in the store. Don't even care if it's a Star Wars thing or something. I just that would be the ultimate nostalgia trip. It, it just costs you a whole paycheck. Yeah, seriously, Legos ain't cheap. Nope. In a futile effort to put an end to his sensory torture, Frank masturbates onto the floor. Whatever works. After resorting to curling up, after what seems to be an eternity, everything stops at once. Uh, He feels completely normal. Every nerve in his body isn't shooting feelings through him. He's not tasting the, the bonbons and other earthly delights. He's not hearing the birds. He's not seeing his, you know, childhood trauma unfold before his eyelids. And rising, he notices the plate of dove heads and the gallon of urine are nowhere to be found. So those made a real splash with the Cenobites, I guess. Yeah. Um, That's one thing, actually, that I will say is kind of goofy. This whole, like, this whole novel 
is pretty kind of pulpy if I'm using that term correctly, you know, it's kind of nasty. It's kind of exploitation-y. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like the gallon of urine and the dove heads, I'm almost certain are not a part of the actual film, but they do kind of seem like the perfect little, like this story is, uh, this uh, novella is already kind of so extra that, yeah, you know, why not? Why not have a plate of dove heads and a gallon of urine for when the Cenobites show up? You know what I mean? <laughs> and then they take it and then they're just like sh- chugging it down like it's Arizona yeah, iced tea. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think of uh, it makes me think of it's always sunny when they have the gallons of riot punch or whatever. <laughs> Grain alcohol and Gatorade, dude. Riot punch. It's like uh, uh, <laughs> it reminds me of Charlie, too, when uh He's talking about orange juice. He's like, wait, you mean the mixer? <laughs> yep. Wait, oh, you guys said they didn't have booze on here, but they got screwdrivers right over there. That's orange juice. You mean the stuff they mixed with vodka? <laughs> people, people drink orange juice straight? This is probably like their version of like a mixer, like an orange juice mixer that they mix yep. with their they, <laughs> vodka. The mixed in a little cyanide with a gallon of urine. And oh man, does that go down good. Did nothing like a urine sunrise. <laughs> mm, oh my God, so thirsty all the time. Oh God. Steering a sight to the corner of the room where... Uh, Nothing had been moments earlier. Frank is greeted by one of the Cenobites. Um, usual business, you know, scarified genitals, bloody rot, blah, blah, blah. Casual. Uh, this, this was actually, I believe there were four Cenobites that stepped forward to offer him an invitation into the land of pleasure and pain indivisible. But this was the one of the four Cenobites that hadn't spoke at all mm. and uh, had, quote unquote, her head covered with like a hood um and to top it all off she's sitting on a pile of rotting human heads cool. uh with uh with all the tongues ripped out and splayed across her thighs um what they're like the, attached to her thi- imagery they're attached to her thighs basically no, they are ripped out and like laid across her thighs. Once again, like the oh. the shower of rose petals uh, splayed on the ground. Oh man, rotting Damn. heads, man! That must be a sight for hmm, not sore eyes. What's the opposite of sore? You get it. Um, she tells Frank, "Oh, so you finished dreaming? Good. Now we can begin." Yay. Showing us that the show has not even started, dude. Oh, buckle up. <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. I mean, this is obviously where it's going. This is 10 pages into the book. But, man, he over over two or three pages, we have this terrifically written thing where you're picturing yourself in this guy's shoes. You're literally every feeling you've ever had is happening times a thousand beyond like beyond what you thought. And then, yeah, the Cenobites like, Oh, that was just, I mean, that was just the, uh, that was just the butter in the saucepan, baby. We ain't even throwed the steak in yet. <laughs> uh, it's about to sizzle up here. Yes, sir. Immediate. Well, it's going to be like extremely rare. Ooh. The steak that we're about to dive into. Oh yeah. Well, not in a delicious way. No. Uh, maybe for some people. Later on, after being banished into oblivion, Frank's brother, uh, aforementioned, Rory, 
makes his way to his deceased grandparents' house, left to Rory through inheritance, and plans to move in with his beautiful wife, Julia. Do we have Um, to talk about Rory? This guy's a real boring guy. This guy sucks. Rory is a bit of a bore, but I will say I'd probably prefer his company to Frank's. (laughs) Um, And, oh my god. Every book we've read has had some sort of a strange crossover to another. Um, <clears throat> maybe not in quite so like literal a way, but I don't know if you noticed this, Cole. The house they move into, did you catch the street name for it? No, I didn't. It's the house on Lodovico Street. Oh, yeah, yeah. I actually do remember that now. In A Clockwork Orange, it's Lodovico in... Um, uh, in Hellbound Heart here, it's a lot of Vico Street, but still so similar and just kind of funny. Couldn't help yeah. but have a bit of a snack at that. And, and uh, Ludovico, his technique was used in Clockwork Orange uh, for uh, Alex. And that was when he had to, to watch all the films a- and like to make him into a Clockwork Orange, a perfect member of society. Uh, you know what? I, I feel like, I mean, the Hellbound Heart is cool, but can we just cover A Clockwork Orange again? Would you mind? Um, we can uh, start re-record. right now. Actually. <laughs> I have my second outline for A Clockwork Orange right here, and instead of being, whatever, five pages like the first one, this one's actually like 15. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to start in there, okay? Um, the book starts oh, off with... <laughs> <laughs> While searching the house, trying to pick out a bedroom, Julia stumbles into a damp and chill room. Kind of weird. Can't picture what this room would be used for or anything. Maybe a ritual or... Yeah, or whatever. The room has had every source of light concealed very well. He, uh, whoever was in here before, whoever it would be, literally can't even guess if I tried. They they didn't just put the two thumbtacks over the corners of the window with the blanket going over it. No, he... He wanted this room to be as dark as possible. She even has a hell of a time ripping the sheets away from the wall to let some light into this dank room. Because this is this was Frank's house, and Frank, little bit, little bit of a weirdo, and and everyone well, yes, kind of knows that, it. That is the obvious reveal that we will get to: is Rory and Frank are brothers, and um. The house was left to Rory in his grandparents' uh, estate or whatever. And I, once again, can't remember. I think it must have been a part of the book, but I can visualize the movie very easily where we see that Frank and Rory, um, they're described to look similar, but Rory is the upstanding citizen and Frank has just been a spitfire his whole life, going wherever the wind takes him. Yeah, he's a real like rock star. He he'd be like yeah. Bon Jovi and Frank or uh, Rory would be um, like a Rick Moranis, you know. Yeah, something. No, love something love Rick like Moranis, that. but you know, you know, he's just looking kind of. He's kind of a nerd. This Rory, right? Um, and so yeah, one of the one of the parts I remember specifically is them talking about how. Julia says, well, you know, what if Frank wants some of the house and you just, what if he comes back and he wants his share and uh, Rory's like, I know he's not coming back. He doesn't care about any of this stuff. He probably 
never owned an apartment in his life even because like i said the dude's just going to whichever corners of the earth may potentially satisfy his voracious sexual appetite yep free spirit (laughs) julia feels a sort of presence in the room but moves on it is at this specific point that we're made privy to the fact that julia and frank humped a week before julia and rory's wedding showing that nothing is off limits to frank once again this one is a little more scandalous than devious or whatever but still he shows up a week before the wedding I'm going to keep talking about the movie. In the movie, he shows up out of nowhere. They probably don't even expect him to come to the wedding in the first place. And then he comes and uh, just has sex with Julia right away, his brother's bride-to-be. Not an ounce of remorse. Um, No. We'll see that. We'll see that this hump meant a lot to Julia, but it was just another passing fancy for Frank. And interestingly enough, one of the things that stood out to me a lot in this part of the book is that uh, their affair is referred to as taking on all the quote unquote aggression and joylessness of rape. Hmm. So this is branded into Julia's memory, but she is still not, uh, I mean, she must be seeing it through rose colored glasses or something like that, because it doesn't sound like either of these two were having a real good time. And who's to say, too, that Julia isn't perhaps experiencing some sort of trauma from a rape situation. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But the way she talks about her husband at the same time, too, is like, oh, yeah, she's not a fan. (laughs) Uh, Rory is a bit of a nerd. But like I said, we're we're fine with that. Bit of a square, but, you know, it's better than being... um, a dirtbag that cheats yeah. on his uh, brother's wife. I was going to say, I definitely would take Rory over Frank 10 times out of 10. Yeah, but um, Rory uh, or, or Frank, Frank, he's a he's a hunk in the movie. He is a hunk. I'll say that. Yeah, he is a bit of a hunk with a dubbed over voice. There's a little trivia for <laughs> you that I'm sure we'll talk about after I watch the movie again. Um before our final episode of this series, however long it turns out to be. Um, The film was shot in England, but Clive Barker, or maybe the studio, they wanted it to be Americanized, so many of the people, (laughs) instead of being like, I might, just took the lorry down to the El Bobby, with the specific line, like Frank's first line in the movie, it's so obvious that he's dubbed over to he's standing out in the sprinkler system that's supposed to look like rain and Julia opens the door and Frank goes, can I come in? Um, <laughs> it's pretty obvious when you watch it. It's still a good voice, but man, they do that with some of those movies. And I understand like with the Sergio Leone dollars trilogy, you know, for a fistful of dollars, for a few dollars more and the good, the bad, the ugly. Those are spaghetti westerns. So many of the actors didn't speak English, so they had to dub them over. But with Hellraiser here, they spoke English, but he just wanted them to have American accents. Like, or whoever just wanted them to have American accents. That's kind of ridiculous, but that's all right. Because Dang. I, still want to make- I, I didn't notice that, but I'll have to look out for it. Did you watch Hellraiser recently? Yeah, or, yeah. Like, how recently are we talking? 
three weeks ago. Oh, okay, awesome. God, I love that movie. Jesus wept. Um, <sighs> still, after Julia and Frank's strange affair, she feels an intense longing and we're informed that she has absolutely no love for Rory and strictly sticks to the marriage for financial purposes. Hmm. Yikes, Julia. I mean, you're literally not doing anyone any favors doing that crap, dude. But you suck anyway, and we're going to see that you suck even harder than we do know now. Oh, so yeah. after a few hours of moving in, Rory slices his hand. And while Julia is in the quote unquote dank room, he seeks her out, hoping to offload his gush onto her, seeing that he is very squeamish. Um, iconic part in the movie he cuts his hand on the back of a nail, like the flat part, which doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> He's bleeding like a stuck pig, and um, he takes her to the hospital so that he can get stitched up. But meanwhile, something strange happens at the house. In the time that they're away, a malevolent present rises within the house from under the floorboards. The aforementioned ejaculation of Frank, before being taken with the Cenobites meant that he left a small enough part of himself on the earth recoil that he still exists on earth in some tiny facet. I Just won the race. Little, his seed, yeah, his seed sprinkled onto the uh, freshly scrubbed floorboards was enough to bring him back when mixed with his brother's blood because the damp room is where he did the ritual and where it's, you know, his jism was spattered on the floor and then his brother's blood mixes with it and that's enough for uh, Frank to potentially escape his situation from uh, uh, his time spent with the Order of the Gash. There's nothing stronger than the blood of your brother and your own... Uh, Offspring. <laughs> Discovering Frank while exploring the dark, dank room after uh, after an initial bout of pure terror, Julia and Frank begin to bargain. While Frank is little more than muscle and bones at this point, amazing effects in the movie. Oh, uh, so wh great. Wh oh, my God. Oh, him initially rising from the floorboards, dude. Oh. What little blood Rory shed onto the floor was enough to bring uh, Frank back from whence he journeyed. That that part, this part of the movie was the when I first watched the film maybe five years ago. This is what really sure. stuck with me. The practical effects of this was just so cool, um, incredible. Yeah, and. When uh, I I forgot to mention this, but like when uh, Rory cut his hand, um, yep. I, I just remembered how much like Julia was like belittling him in in her yeah, head. She's like, what do you want? <laughs> um, and in, in another interesting deviation, Frank in the book is Larry in the movie. No, not Frank. Rory in the book is Larry in the movie. Oh. Americanized once again. Larry. Yeah, that makes sense. Larry is definitely. Uh, Larry is a nice blue jean, Bud Light drinking American name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Seeing a pattern here, Frank propositions Julia to get him a couple, just a couple, of big old juicy blood-filled dudes that Julia can kill so that Frank can sap them dry like a California raisin, and they can uh, continue their lives together normally, even though that doesn't make uh, any sense. And after some personal convincing, Julia tells Frank she'll help him carry out his dastardly deed. Oh, jeez. And yeah. with that, we are done with part one of the Hellbound Heart. Cole, buddy, what's on your mind? I mean, so much information, so much going on, so incredible. I seriously, I love this book and I love the movie. I have pinhead tattoo leg. For anyone that didn't know, I, I was telling Lucas Lucas this, but like the way it's written, it's like addicting. That was one of the first books I've read in a while that I did in like three days, maybe. Uh, I'm so glad to hear it. But it, it is shorter. Uh, but it's really good. Like it's just it, it doesn't stop really, and it just like latches on, but. Yeah, like I, I think all the characters are like pretty interesting. Julia, especially because it's like, oh, it's going to be a nice husband and wife. And then it's like Julia talking about how much she hates her uh, husband, Rory. And you see that a lot when he cuts his hand. And he's like, oh, you're such a baby. And then she's like, watch as I'm going to have to like uh, bandage his own hand for him. He can't even do it himself. Like little details yeah, like that. Uh, but yeah, Just she's, no she's all in. Yeah. I can't get no respect. She, she's no all respect. in for Frank. She is yes, all she is. in and we're, we'll and see that. Unfortunately, we'll see that, uh, she's willing to follow him to hell and back. Yeah. And maybe, some- maybe raise a little hell in the process. Cole, dun-dun, the movie dun-dun, is called dun-dun. Hellraiser. Oh my God. <laughs> If I didn't know any better, I'd think you did that on purpose. But I don't know any better, so I don't. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, I've been so excited to cover this book ever since we made plans to. I'm so glad you enjoy it like I do, Cole. It's just it's just wonderful. Yeah. Part two, you, you thought this was crazy. Part two is going to oh. have a lot more killing. A lot more sex and uh, yeah, just just, wait. it's going to the love work. triangle gets crazy. Okay. Before we hop off here, does love triangle, does that not mean that person A loves person B, person B loves person C and person C loves person A? Can a love triangle be two people loving the same person? Is that the idea? I I just think it's you know you got three people and uh, there, there's a love interest going on oh, with one of them and it, there's a conflict of interest between two of the parties that are interested into the one person I think cool yeah um well with that thank everyone so much for tuning into the show. You can follow us over on Instagram at the Bad Apple Book Club. Um, you know, weekly posts, nothing too crazy. I, I personally, when I 
am doing my thing with the Instagram account. I couldn't, you know, think of anything to put up there that isn't just the announcement of a new episode, but I'm sure that will work our way there, man. We're pretty much seasoned in the podcast field, so all this stuff is just going to be coming more naturally by the second. Hope you guys are having a spooky time out there. I know I got yeah. my my pumpkins up. I carved my pumpkins. I am going to decorate the house a little bit, maybe put some spider webs up. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for Halloween. And this is get, getting me in the mood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I suppose um, this has been a fantastic recording session, Cole. Thank you so much for thank you for enjoying the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you wrote um, it very well. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I didn't want to say anything. Um, but everyone out there. Uh, be sure to take it easy and to have a wonderful day or night or just have a good time, okay? Stay spooky. Trouble with that podcast, you call me. Of course. You know, oh, yeah. I can always do nothing with it. <laughs>